What are the challenges in building an AI product? Are there some challenges unique to Japan? What values can your product provide that publicly available datasets, frameworks, and models can't? We talk about these with Hazumu Yamazaki in this episode. He is the co-founder and co-CEO of Empath, which provides emotion recognition API to other enterprises. What got us interested in Empath was their unique strategy to break into the global market. They pitched their startup in multiple international pitch contests and they won like six of them in a year. They won pitch contests like IFA and Viva Technology. We'll talk more about this strategy in the episode. So let's dive in. Hello, everyone. This is the Tech Culture Podcast, where we have conversations with startup founders in Japan running successful businesses. We uncover the strategies and the insights from the founders that people who want to build their own successful business here in Japan so people like us can use. I'm your host, Kostab. And I'm your host, Prashant. I wanted to start off by saying, how is Empath doing? And can you share any numbers for revenue, users, or any metrics? Sure. Thank you for having me today. I'm Hazumi, co-founder and a co-chair of the Empress and a money focus on their business development, not only in Japan, but also the global market. As I mentioned, we now have about uh, 3,000 customers, over 50 countries, and we mainly provide in a solution like SDK and API, uh, which can identify human emotion from their acoustic feature of the voice, such as speed, tone, pitch, volume, intonation. And we are also going to launch our new SaaS product this month, which is called a Jamplore, that can automatically record every online meeting on Zoom or Google Meet or Cisco WebEx or Microsoft Teams, whatever. And then we analyze our recorded video and audio data to check the mental state of the participants, for instance, as well as transcribe everything, mainly in Japanese and English, to improve their, for instance, sales conversion rate in online meeting or to improve the efficiency of the internal meeting, for instance. So from what I gathered from your LinkedIn profile, like you started Empath soon after you finished your PhD at University of Tokyo. So what problems did you tackle in your PhD and did that lead to Empath? What was the motivation to build like an API for emotion recognition? Uh, good question. Actually, uh, in the truth, I dropped out of my PhD right after I studied Empath. Before studying Empress, I was a PhD student of the Department of Compatibility in the University of Tokyo, mainly focusing on their philosophy and their literature in the United States and Japan. And I was doing their analytic philosophy, mainly in the realm of the philosophy of mind, which deal with their problem of the consciousness of artificial intelligence, for instance. So I was quite interested in their how artificial intelligence could have a mind like us or not. So this is why I get really interested in their potential of their emotion, artificial intelligence, which uh, my co-founder, Takaki, was focusing on at the time. When I was in a PhD program, actually, I met my co-founder at a bar in Shinjuku, accidentally. So we, are kind of, we were just friends at a bar, but uh, he started to tell me about his project about emotional intelligence. And 
as I studied the philosophy of mind at that time. So I got really interested in the potential of the artificial intelligence from the perspective of the philosophy and the humanities. So this is why I joined that company. So before that, I didn't have any background of the business. So I got really, how can I say, scared to enter into the new realm from the academic background to the business field. But it's been now five years since we started the Empress. And yeah, I get accustomed to business as well. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's wrong when people say alcohol doesn't solve any problems. (laughs) 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 Right. So after you found your co-founder and you were already interested in artificial intelligence. So before starting Empath, so what kind of market research did you do for this product? So what made you decide or how did you decide that people or other companies are willing to pay for such a product, willing to pay for an API that can recognize emotions and speech? So in terms of the uh, market strategy, first, uh, we conducted a lot of the research of the international market, mainly in their uh, US effective computing market research, but we couldn't find enough examples of their emotional artificial intelligence at that time around uh, 2017, except for uh, some use cases in the contact center. But we were really interested in the field of the mental health care to use this kind of artificial intelligence to check the mental state of people suffering from the mental health disorders like depression or PTSD or whatever. So we started to collaborate with uh, some universities in Japan, such as the University of Tokyo, to see the potential of the emotion artificial intelligence. So before adopting the voice emotion recognition solution, we were also checking other solutions like, you know, a facial emotion recognition or a blank computing interface uh, to see the mental state of the people or from the state of the brain. But we found voice will be better as an interface because at the time we already have Amazon Alexa or Siri or whatever uh, for the voice command user interface. After conducting some research in the field of the voice assistant, we found it would be really great to connect our solution with this kind of a voice assistant and to check the mental state of the people in really in easy circumstances. And our first project was with NTT Docomo to check the mental state of the volunteer people working for the victims of the Sri Lankan earthquake, which happened in 2011 in Japan. And we got some success uh, to check the mental state of the volunteers. First, we started our technology in the field of the mental healthcare when we established a company in 2017. However, the market size of the mental healthcare here in Japan is not so huge as the market of that in the United States. So we did pivot in order to continue our business, especially to get more revenue. Not only in the mental health care, we provided our, our solution to the robotics field as well, as well as using our technology in the contact center, which is one of our main revenue for market field now. So to answer your question, first we conducted a market research, especially in the field of the mental health care, but we did a pivot because of the market size. Uh, we expanded into other fields like robotics or contact centers. So it's it's very interesting that you bought that you started trials with Docomo and then some call centers and some other products in different countries. 
The thing is, from what I've talked with a few other people who are building business here in Japan, I've heard that when you want to do sales for B2B businesses, especially here, so the sales cycle is quite big. So you need to you know, invest a lot of time before customers actually sign up and start paying. Sometimes it could be like one year or something. So when you were like in initial stage of developing the business, did you find it difficult to, you know, quickly iterate and test your business or how difficult it was for you to get those initial users for trials? Thank you for the great question here. Actually, it's a problem here in Japan, especially for the people who like to do a business for enterprises solution. So we also had a difficult time because of the long-term period of the POC with the big enterprises. But the situation has been changing at that time, around 2017, because we had a kind of a startup boom around 2016 compared to the early 2010s. We got some offer for the paid POC from the big enterprises. So, so it was very tough. We simultaneously conducted a lot of the POC project with our big enterprises, including the NTT, Docomo, or Fujitsu. Of course, it's very tough for the negotiation, but <laughs> we had a kind of, how can I say, it really took a time for us, but we simultaneously conducted not only the enterprise project, but also some SMA project as well. Not only providing our own solution, but also did uh, some uh, system integration uh, for them, especially in order to get a revenue. In a first stage of our company, it's really tough to get revenue only from our voice emotion recognition solution. So we simultaneously did a lot of side projects for system integration or software development. So in the initial stages when you were developing the product and you were also or trying to do some integrations for small or medium-sized businesses. Were you and your co-founder were the only people who were developing the product, or did you hire some people or a team to work on the product? So first, uh, we started to hire part-time developers, not a full-time, because the situation of our, our finance was not stable at that time. So we conducted a lot of side projects with SME clients, always our part-time developers. And then once we got revenue, we started to hire these part-time developers as our full-time team members. So this is how we started to hire our first team members, which means first we started a company, only me and my co-founder. But we were not developers, actually. Of course, my co-founder have a background of software development, and he had expertise in the field of the emotional location intelligence. But we didn't have developers who could develop our own solution. And so first, we started hiring part-time software developers. I'm trying to get a sense of you know how long it takes generally businesses to become sustainable here. Since you first started working full-time on Empath, to the point where you were earning enough revenue to become a sustainable business. So how long did that took? It took about a one and a half years to make our, our own business sustainable because during conducting a lot of the POC and some side project, we started to develop our own product, which were Emotional Intelligence SDK and API. So we launched this product right about after half a year since we established our first prototype and then we gradually got our first customers 
And also, we started to introduce our product for the clients whom we've already conducted a side project. So first, we started as a kind of software development company, but gradually, we started to introduce our own solution to our past clients. So this is how we got our new customers to make our business more stable. Nice. So I wanted to talk a bit more about your new product, Jamboard. Based on the products that you have on your website, it seems like a natural extension to provide emotion recognition for online meetings because that's going to be around for a while. Did that come as a feature request or did you think it's like a natural evolution in our problem statements? So the background of the developing our new product, Jamboard, is we would like to get a more data set of the human conversations. For instance, it's quite easy to get a lot of data in the contact centers. But before COVID-19, it was very hard to get a real communication data, especially in the business scene. In a contact center, it's quite easy because they are using a phone. But when it comes to the face-to-face meeting, it's very tough to collect the real voice data. So we found this online meeting situation after COVID-19 would be a great chance was to correct a lot of natural conversations. So we started to uh, develop our new product, Jamboard, a year before to see the potential. We especially first started to focus on the black box problem of the sales meeting in the online session. For instance, before COVID-19, only the participants of the sales meeting could identify the result of their sales deals with a it was won or lost. And managers could not identify what would be the real cause of their lost deals. Because a lot of sales reps just tell them about their result of the sales process. So everything was black box. But when it comes to the online meeting, we could record them and share them with managers to improve their negotiation skills or presentation skills, for instance. So this is how we started to develop Jamlaw in order to capture every conversation as well as when the sales rep used each slide, for instance, killer slide, to introduce your solution. And we also analyze the talk proportion, talk speed of the sales reps, as well as the emotion of the sales reps in order to see how the good sales performer succeeded in negotiating or succeeded in making a good presentation on the online web meeting. But right after we launched our alpha version of the Jamlaw, we found a lot of potential customers in other sectors also get interested in Jamlaw. For instance, even for the internal meeting, they had a problem to make a minute of the meeting. It really takes the time, but we developed our own voice recognition system which means right after the online meeting finished, we could provide a minute, I mean the transcription of the recorded call or video data for every team member, which could be shareable and which actually decreases the time of creating their meeting minute for sales team members as well. And even we can share the video link of the recorded data to other team members for them to check what happened during their meeting. And they only have to check the important scene of the meeting, not their full length of their coded video, which actually decreases 
the time of participate in the meeting and increase the productivity, for instance, of the developers to decrease the number of the meetings they have to attend. So a lot of enterprises also get interested in our product, even in terms of their productivity of internal meeting. And some of coaching or online counseling providers get also interested in our product as well to monitor the mental state of the patients as well as their counselors as well. And which could be the shareable or to their clients as well to see what they have talked during their sessions. We are quite interested in, in the mental health care field, especially for their online counseling field, to capture this kind of like counseling data to create a virtual online counseling assistant to check the mental symptom, for instance, depression or whatever. So beyond my expectation, uh, we got a lot of our potential customers, not only in the field of sales, but also healthcare or internal meeting or one-on-one meeting. The use case you talked about were like in a professional setting, but in some of your pitches, you mentioned how customers reach out and say, can we use Empath to find out if our partner is cheating on us or who is most likely to gamble in the setting? Or like even as a lie detector. So what are like some of the interesting user feature requests that you have received? It's interesting, but you don't want to work on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the question. Actually, in terms of the ethics, we don't want to use our technology for a lie detector. We only focus on a kind of the mental state of their people, just focusing on whether uh, people get positive or negative. And we also use our technology to check their customer satisfaction uh, during their online meeting or sales call by using the metrics of detecting their anger or frustration of the people by using the emotional recognition. But as I mentioned, some people, (laughs) some potential customers ask us (laughs) whether it is possible to use our technology for the lie detector or to check the fraud in the sector of the insurance, for instance, because there are a lot of the fraud problem. But as I mentioned, in terms of the ethics, so far we do not have any plan to use our technology for light detector. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about the use cases, and so since Empath only does API for audio data, so the natural evolution for that is people or customers might request include the video data with them as well and give me your emotion recognition for that. So do you receive similar requests for Empath as well? The thing is, so far, we are collecting a video data, but we are quite wondering whether uh, we could or we should analyze uh, especially facial data or recorded video data in terms of the privacy of the users. For instance, especially in the United States, a lot of states or public sectors now banned using their facial authentication solution as well as a face emotion recognition solution in terms of the privacy. So I think this kind of privacy torrent will also come into Japan as well in near future. So, though we are correcting the video data as well, but so far we are focusing on the voice in terms of the uh, low regulations, potential low regulations here in Japan. So, I was curious, like, Empath's problem statement is emotion recognition using audio. So, I kind of wanted to know what part is more appealing to you. Is it the audio detection or, like, the emotion detection? 
So first we started from the voice emotional recognition startup, but now we have our multiple voice analysis solution like our conversation intelligence as well as our natural language processing as well as our ASL, I mean voice recognition system. But a lot of people got really interested in our emotional recognition solution because it works regardless of the language technically. So we don't have to use our voice recognition system, especially to check the emotion of their speakers. For instance, as you mentioned, you have a background of uh, doing the emotional recognition by using the natural language processing. It will be the one solution. But sometimes people can be sarcastic. For instance, in some context sentences, people say, thank you, in a very angry tone. <laughs> but when you use the natural language processing, your AI identify it as a kind of their positive signs of the users. But when you use our voice emotional recognition system, probably our AI says, no, so, it's, so he or she says, thank you, he or she get really angry. It's not a positive sign, for instance. <laughs> this is quite important in context sentence because it's, it's a matter of the context, actually, but some Japanese users have these kind of sarcastic behaviors when they call the context sentence. For instance, arigato. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> so especially in terms of the context sentence, they got really interested in our voice emotional recognition solution without natural language processing. So in that sense, I could say a lot of customers get really interested in our voice emotional recognition solution. But we would like to create a more multimodal emotional analysis solution by connecting NLP and a voice behavior emotional analysis solution, which would improve our accuracy of the emotional recognition, I believe. Hmm. I guess you were talking about using Jamboard, you are also collecting lots of meeting data so that you can leverage it to improve your AI systems. Yeah. Since you are doing emotional recognition in Japanese language, Generally, the resources and all the machine learning resources and data sets are quite abundant in English language, but not so much in other languages. How did you start with curating a good data set that you can use to develop your AI systems? And mm -hmm. what other problems did you face in curating a data set for your AI system? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So first, we started to collect the data set of our voice emotional recording system by providing our web API for free for developers in next stage of the getting the voice data from our users, including the developers. So this is how we first developed our voice emotional recognition system. So when it comes to Jamlow, which is now applicable for the Japanese market because voice recognition is only for the Japanese, but we have a plan to provide our Jamlow solution to oversee to get more data, I mean more multi-language data, from global market as well. First, probably we could uh, connect some third-party speech API into our Jamlow solution. For instance, when it comes to the Arabic, it's quite tough to make Arabic speech recognition system by ourselves. So first, it, it would be a good option for us to use third-party voice recognition solution. But after we gather some data of our users, I think we have a potential to develop our own, for instance, Arabic voice emotional equation solutions uh, with accumulated data on our Jamlo server. So this is one of our tactics uh, for the future to expand into the global business market. 
especially to make some uh, localization and customization of our voice AI solution. So when you collect the data, what's your strategy for getting the labels for it? Because when you are collecting the data, you don't know what are the actual emotions present in the suite. So do you use some third-party libraries or third-party services for this? Yeah, annotation is quite tough part for the voice emotion recognition. So usually we prepare for the, uh, each language uh, voice data set and then provide this data for the annotators whose, whose mother language is the same as our collected voice data set. And we have our own annotation tool for the annotators to put the labels easily. And then we usually prepare for about more than five annotators for the same voice data set. And if all annotations are the same, we define it as a correct data. And then we provide this data for our machine learning operations to make a learning. I had one curiosity regarding different languages. Let's say a tone that might be considered moderate in English might sound somewhat rude in Japanese. My first question is, do you have different language models for each language? And did you see any tonal differences between different languages? Because you have global customers, right? Actually, we have multiple emotion recognition detection algorithms for the, each particular language dataset, which means we have a corpus for some major languages like English, French, Spanish, or Japanese. So we did a, a kind of a tuning up for the, each corpus and the model based on this kind of each corpus to make some optimization for the each language. Because as you mentioned, we think there's a lot of a cultural difference in their speech behavior. So though we are focusing on their acoustic features of the voice, which is independent from the language, but there actually exists a real cultural differences of showing the emotion, even in their acoustic features. So this is why we have multi-models and a corpus for each major language to make some optimization. You also mentioned sarcasm could be a real hard problem to detect, like arigato. It's actually harsh. So are there other elements that kind of make your work or life harder, like sarcasm? Yeah, sarcasm, or in terms of arigato, is, <laughs> how can I say, most obvious one. As you know, we Japanese people are not straightforward in any sense in terms of the conversation which is quite different from the American people, for instance. So if you take every word literally, there will be some misunderstanding <laughs> in the communication with Japanese people for their international people. It happens, actually. And so in that sense, we also have to have a NLP model for the ambiguous Japanese conversation context to check the real context of what the speakers would like to say. But it's quite tough for the machines to understand this kind of the context. So we usually put metadata to our voice data set. For instance, whether it is a conversation in the internal meeting or contact center, for instance. Because even Japanese people get really straightforward in a contact center situation. <laughs> It's quite different from the uh, daily conversation. So sometimes this kind of the metadata really works 
to improve their, for instance, natural language processing or emotion detection in each particular business situation. Next, I want to talk about what makes Empath a unique product. If I'm an enterprise, I want to do some emotion recognition. Why should I use Empath and not something else? In the last few years, the machine learning tools have become you know quite abundant and quite easy to use. We have really good library support like PyTorch, Lightning, PyTorch, and we already have Keras and TensorFlow. It's quite easy even for non-machine learning engineers to develop machine learning models. And we also have some public data to use to train our models. So what makes your uh, machine learning models and predictions made by your uh, systems much more better than the any generic model trained by a person? I think model or algorithm itself is not so important anymore now. I think data is the king in the machine learning. One of our strong point is that we could get a lot of the real conversation data from the contact center, as well as this kind of the online meeting. When it comes to the academia, a lot of researchers use a kind of their small data set, especially for their only academic purposes. So they are quite struggling for getting the real conversation data or real meeting data. This is why a lot of universities ask us to do some collaborative research project because they are looking for our real data, because it's quite hard for them to get them. And so uh, in that sense, I think, of course, now it's quite, and there's a kind of that democratization of the machine learning technology because of a lot of uh, good tools from Google or whatever. But uh, a lot of people are getting trouble in collecting uh, a light data set or a real conversation data set. Even in the emotion analysis situation, a lot of our researchers use a kind of the acting voice data set by actors. It's not a real conversation, actually. We have a kind of the data supply chain to get a real conversation data. This is our most strong point, especially for the machine learning optimization. It's not a model or algorithm, but the data. Yeah, I guess that's why companies like Google and Apple and Amazon are king in AI systems. What kind of tech stacks do you use to develop uh, machine learning systems at Empath? It's a tough question for me because I'm not a developer, so actually. <laughs> I'm totally counting on my developers. So of course, they're using a PyTorch or Airflow or whatever, and they're using a Kubernetes, and they're using some Docker container. I know that, but <laughs> I'm not good at <laughs> this kind of the machine learning to info. Yeah, I was thinking like some people after listening to this episode, maybe some people are interested in working at Empath. So it would be good to know what kind of technology you work with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we use TensorFlow, we use PyTorch, we use Airflow, whatever. But one of the interesting points is uh, we are also interested in the Web3. So some of uh, our core engine are written at last, which is quite rare here in Japan. Yeah. Uh, please explain how are you going to use Web3 and please assume I don't know anything about Web3. <laughs> no, Web3? Like what are your plans for integrating Web3 in your product? Uh, yeah, so the thing is, uh, we are quite interested in the democratization of the data. For instance, we would like to provide some tokens or cryptos for the enterprises that give us the voice data. Because so far, we are just collecting a voice data in exchange of providing our solution. Of course, it's a kind of a Web 2.0 model, but 
I think in the Web3 world, ownership of the data will be quite problematic. And so not only the individuals, but also enterprises would protect their data set, I think. So it's getting really tough for AI startups like us to get a real conversation data in the near future, I think. So this is why I'm quite interested in developing the Web3 structure of their data collection. Since we're talking about democratization, I wanted to talk about AI and specifically AI in Japan. So do you think the adoption of AI in Japan is behind the world? Yeah, compared to the GAFA in the United States, actually we Japanese AI companies are far behind. But we got some successful cases of Japanese AI startups' IPOs, for instance, Excel Wizards or so there will be a chance for us. But as I mentioned, uh, one of the key matters is not just focusing on the algorithm or the model, but how we could create our own data supply chain. Because even though you created a really, really good model, without data, it would be really tough to make real artificial intelligence, which could work for the real business situation. So I think there will be a chance for the Japanese AI startup ecosystem as well. If we could succeed in creating the data supply chain, like the one we are trying to create in the Jumbo, for instance, to get a real business voice data set. Because in terms of the algorithm of the new models, we are far, far, far behind from their US big tech giants. But uh, once we could create our own model of the data supply chain, there will be an opportunity even for the Japanese AI startups, I think. Yeah, any advice for people like me who are building the product? Advice for the beginning, initial stages? Yeah, for the initial stage, I think starting AI is quite tough because maybe you do not have any good data or you do not have good developers, for instance. But if you are in the business context, we highly recommend for other potential or future AI entrepreneurs to conduct a lot of interviews with your potential customers. If you just started from the technology, I think it would be really, really problematic because if you already have some specific technology, you have to, you try to make some pseudo hypothesis of your customers. It doesn't matter whether you use AI or some other technology to solve the real customer's pains. But once you find out real burning pains of your customers, it's a really good point for the entrepreneurs to start a business. Without any pains, even though you have great technologies, it doesn't work in a business field because it's quite different from the academia. You should first focus on your customer's pain, or especially to start a lot, to conduct a lot of user interviews, potential user interviews. And then if AI is appropriate for solving the problems you find, it's a lifetime. So don't start from the AI, just start from their customer's pain. Yes, yes, we should build painkillers, not vitamins. <laughs> Are there any organizations, whether private or government, accelerators or VCs who specifically support AI startups or who supported you in the beginning? Here in Japan, there's a lot of the AI consortium you could join. I don't know whether it is helpful or not, but from my experience, in terms of the AI accelerators, 
We got an opportunity to participate in Google Launchpad Accelerator, the first batch in Japan. And it's a kind of the machine learning bootcamp for the developers. Not only for the CTO developers, but also the business side people as well. It was a really good program. And it was in an English program. But now I think Google's Launchpad startup program also provides a Japanese program as well. So not only international people, but also Japanese entrepreneurs could participate in that program. It was really efficient to understand how business people should collaborate with AI engineer or how AI engineer should develop a machine learning optimization, ML ops, for instance, from their, uh, not only Google people, but also the entrepreneurs all over the world. Which is, I got an opportunity to talk with an AI startup from Islaya, or a Bay Area, of course, Japan as well. And yeah, it was really beneficial for us to redesign our data supply chain as well as our machine ops. So my recommendation will be joining the Google Launchpad Accelerator. It would be really great. Yeah, I guess it's really important to you know understand the other businesses and machine learnings interact because sometimes we get too much caught up in the technology itself and we forget about the actual customer problems so we might try to focus on the building the best models but you know that's not always the best thing you should try to solve the customers so it doesn't have to be the best possible model since you have been working on global strategy for a long time and you've been doing sales your product is being used in more than 50 countries so what are the difference in sales process you have found in different countries like how is it different in japan and how is it different in different countries when it comes to the global business development, first we started joining a lot of the international pitch competitions uh, to make a kind of a standing out position because we didn't have much money for a PR or a marketing. But, so we got opportunities to participate in a pitch competition over the world. And then, fortunately, we got a lot of first prizes in a pitch competition, which really made us standing out. For instance, we got a lot of media coverage. Then we got a lot of inquiries from our potential customers. So this is how we first created our first sales pipeline. So we didn't do any outbound call to get our potential customers in a global business market because as you may know, people in the global markets don't know the Japanese startup like us. To make us standing out, it's quite important to participate in tech conferences like CES or South by Southwest or Biba Technology in France or whatever. And if you got a place in a pitch competition in such an international tech conference, it really has a really, really huge effect of the PR and marketing. So we really did take advantage of this kind of global conference opportunities first. In one of the videos I saw on YouTube, you said you won like six or seven pitches in one year. And you also coach people on how to pitch in English. So as our sensei, like, do you have any tips on how we can make a mediocre pitch or like a good pitch to a great pitch? <laughs> so the thing is I'm not a native speaker of the English and I'm I'm not confident of my English as well. But when it comes to the pitch, it's just three or four or five minutes. So you could prepare for anything. You have to memorize every talk script. 
Of course, if you speak in English, the thing is I memorize every talk script of my pitch, of course. The important thing is there's a kind of the narrative structure in a pitch. For instance, of great accelerators such as Y Combinator as a kind of the video for introducing how you should organize your pitch deck in terms of the narrative structures. It's very simple, actually. So once you get this kind of the narrative structure, it's quite easy for anyone to make a pitch in three minutes. And when it comes to the language barrier, <laughs> memorization really works. Of course, you have to answer the questions from your, <laughs> from your judges. But if you are really focusing on your business, all the questions you will get from your VCs or judges are quite common. The ones you already asked in the sales meeting, for instance. So it's not tough, actually. So if you could prepare for all the answers in English as well, <laughs> even though you are not good at English, I think you could win international pitch competition as well. But the most important point is to understand the narrative structure of the pitch. For instance, starting from their problem and solution core narrative structures. If you just talk about the details of your, for instance, a machine learning or AI part, no one gets interested in your product. First, you have to focus on not the product, but the problem itself. And when you could succeed in creating a good problem solution narrative, it really works. And other points like market or business of model of or whatever is a kind of appendix, not a core, but a core is just problem and solution. So in, in that sense, it's easy. So I was also curious about your funding. Your last funding round was sometime in 2018. Do you plan to do another funding round in the new fu future? Yeah, so we closed our first loan, as she say, in, in 2018, uh, about 3 million US dollars at that time. We also did some debt financing from the Japanese bank as well in 2020. And this year, in 2020, uh, we are going to have our Series B round. It's going to be our uh, second virtual fundraising opportunity. So now we are preparing for that. Compared to earlier days, you have a large amount of customers now, and you also have more than sustainable revenue, and you are growing. So what are the main challenges that you are facing right now to grow, to reach the next milestone in your revenue? So... First step would be uh, whether we could uh, make some success by providing our new SaaS solution, Jumbo. It's not only for revenue, but it also works for our data supply chain and to create a new AI agent, for instance. Because uh, one of our goal is to create an AI assistant for particular business sectors, like meeting support AI agent or sales meeting support AI agent or kind of the virtual counseling AI agent. So this is why uh, we are trying to get out real conversation data through the jump log by providing our SaaS solution. Of course, it makes some transcription or it makes some automatic recording and it really solves our customer's pain. But it's not a kind of the competitive solution. It's a one of the gateway for us to collect a lot of voice data to create our new AI agent. So in terms of the revenue, of course, the success of our new SaaS solution is a key. But right after providing our solution, we are going to start to create our new AI agent for each sectors. 
which will be our next revenue flow as well. And we're also going to improve our SDK or API as well with the accumulated data on the Jamlo as well. So it will be our next revenue flow opportunity for us. What are your goals with Empath in the long term, like maybe five to 10 years? It could be maybe getting acquired or like, you know, branching out into different sectors. But yeah, what kind of vision do you have for Empath right now? So compared to the United States or other international market here in Japan, M&A is not a popular solution of the exit for the status because our number of the M&A players are not huge compared to the United States, for instance. But I think trend has been changing because of the rise of the Japanese startup movement. So some of the big enterprises come to acquire some small startups company like us. So of course, it will be the one option for us. But we are quite interested in our IPOs because we would like to run our own company as long as possible. So far, we are just focusing on the voice emotion recognition or of some voice AIs. But we are also interested in other areas of technologies as well. For instance, as I mentioned, we're quite interested in Web3 infrastructure. So we have developers are focusing on their blockchain as well to make a kind of the compensation or data democratization system for the SaaS product as well. But I think we don't have to make some limit of the scope of their business field. For instance, some of our team members are focusing on not only the artificial intelligence, but also blockchain, as I mentioned. So because it's a kind of a trend now. And we're also going to have a new other potential of the technology right after the trend of the Web3 as well. So we are quite interested in focusing on every tech aspect and to see which area we should focus on. And in that sense, I don't think we have to put a kind of a limited, a narrow scope of our technology for our business strategy. So in that sense, I'm quite interested in developing our new project. For instance, it would be great for us to launch the new product year by year in the different sectors. Thank you for joining today. If people want to find more about you and what you're doing, so where they can go? Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And then you can also Google Inc. and you can find our company. If you have any question, please send me email or from the info or please send a message directly via any social networking services. All right. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Yep. Thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thank you for the time as well. Thank you for having me. Before we end the episode, I'd like to make a correction. Hajimu talked about their new SaaS product for online meetings. We incorrectly referred to it as Jamboard. It is actually called Jamroll. R-O-L-L. I apologize for our mistake. That is all for this episode of the Tech Culture Podcast. You can find the links to all the topics we talked about in the show notes. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at TechCultureBoy. Catch you the next time. Bye.